0: In today's episode, we open our Bibles now to Esther chapter 3. Esther is queen, but King Ahasuerus has placed Haman as his prime minister and given him authority to rule over all the other officials. One official, though, Mordecai, a Jew and cousin to Esther, refuses to bow down to Haman as instructed, and Haman responds in anger and devises a plan to destroy all the Jews. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Monday, January 30th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about their publishing and translating work at lhfmissions.org. Well, to help us continue in our exploration of the book of Esther today, chapter three, I'm pleased to welcome to the show the first time for me as host to have him on, but he's been on uh, with, I think, all the other hosts going back a while, the Reverend Doug Menton, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Milford, Illinois. Good morning, Pastor Menton, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word.
1: Morning, Pastor Boo. Glad to be here today.
0: Well, brother, you know, just in case there's a handful of people who are listening um, since you've been last on, why don't you just take a few moments and share with the listeners what ministry looks like there in Milford, Illinois, how your epiphany's been going, uh, and anything else you'd like to share about yourself.
1: Well, ministry in Milford takes a couple of different forms. It has the typical small-town ministry of just being around the neighbors and being around the community. But also, we have one of the LCC Canine Comfort dogs, which also helps expand our outreach into various different communities in the area. And then, for myself, I also host a podcast called Wrestling with Theology, where I have a shorter uh, uh, a shorter uh, format for a Bible study and confession study each week so to help us to see what we what we believe and why we believe it and to wrestle with the things that are being said outside in the world
0: that sounds great if listeners wanted to check that out where would be the best place for them to go
1: um anywhere you can find your podcast so those of you who listen to the podcast version of this like i do uh, wherever you've got it whether it's google apple uh, Spotify, I'm, I'm on all of the platforms that I could find.
0: Excellent. So search for Thy Strong Word and then search for Wrestling with Theology. Well, anything else going on? I mean, has your epiphany been kind of relaxed like it is for some of us? Although, you know, we always think it's going to be nice and relaxed between Advent and Lent, but sometimes a lot of ministry comes up between. Uh, have you been spending your time getting ready for Lent? It's going to be upon us very soon
1: it is going to be upon us soon and i haven't had as much time to prep for lent as i would like cuz ministry has happened a little bit especially the last couple of weeks so it one of one of those bumps in the road where you the pastor expects it to be okay i've got a little breathing room and then life happens
0: isn't that always how it is oh my goodness we always think we're going to have a little bit of a break but then well like you said life happens same same on my side too Well, i tell you what, I'm eager to dive into Haman's plot, so why don't we start off with prayer, and I'd like to invite you to uh, lead us in that prayer.
1: All right, let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for all the many blessings that you give to each of us. We ask you, as we come together to study this chapter of your word, that you would send your spirit upon myself and Pastor Boo as we go through this word, help us to be able to faithfully proclaim your word through it. We ask all this in your son's most precious name. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, I think the best thing to do is just to get started in reading the text. But before we actually do that, would you like to lay the foundation for what has happened so far, perhaps in the previous two chapters, uh, so that people can be caught up as we head into chapter three?
1: Okay, so... As we get into Chapter 3, we've had the big feast of Ahasuerus happening in Chapter 1, where Queen Vashti refuses to come out and perform for them so that she gets banished. And then the great and wise officials of the Persian Empire decide, um, we really shouldn't have a king without a queen. So then, they go out and round up basically every single female in the kingdom and parade them out, kind of like the Miss Universe pageant, except for instead of a a tiny little crown, uh, you actually get the office of queen.
0: Oh yeah, right.
1: And so then you have you have Esther as uh, one of the Jews in the capital city of Susa finally being chosen, and we also get introduced to Mordecai, who is her uncle, who has really raised her as a father after her parents died. And so as we get into chapter 3, we see Mordecai really coming to the forefront in what it means to be, for him, a faithful Jew. And definitely Uh, implications and things that we can take part today to know what it is to truly be a faithful christian in a nation that is not necessarily friendly to the message anymore
0: so why don't we read chapter three and we're just going to read i don't know the first mm, let's say six verses just to start to get into the chapter Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout all the kingdom of Ahasuerus. So just so far, when we have Haman, the Agagite, He's uh, now been promoted to a prime minister, so to speak. And the, it seems that Ahasuerus, uh, which we also know as Xerxes by his Greek name, he commands all these officials to bow down to uh, Haman, probably to make sure that they are loyal to him and to weed out anyone who might not be loyal. Well, there's one who, regardless of his loyalty, refuses to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Uh, who is Mordecai? Who is Haman? What in the world is going on here brother?
1: Okay, so to get a first to get a context of where we are having picked up from chapter 2 there is a this is 5 years into the future. So 5 years from the time that Esther becomes queen until uh, Haman comes to make his plot against Mordecai. So at some point in this 5 years Haman has been promoted and has been given, as in many of the Persian, especially from Xerxes on, to give the, be given the same homage and uh, basically worship as the king. So as Haman is brought in as the king's right-hand man, the king declares that everybody must treat him in the same way. And so this bowing down that the servants do can be translated as just bowing down as in kind of honor as we saw a few months ago with uh, Queen Elizabeth's funeral and the the bowing in honor of the great monarch that has just died in the funeral procession going by. But you can also translate that word as worship, as in like like worshiping as a god. And so this is where Mordecai has his issues with Haman, is that Mordecai is a good Jew, wants to follow the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And worshiping, whether it's the king or Haman, in his mind, the respect and honor that they are wanting is what he feels is should be reserved for God alone and so he refuses to do it
0: there are some parallels here with um, Daniel, I would say, right? Because during the Babylonian captivity, just a couple hundred years, a few hundred years before the events are taking place here, we have Daniel who also refuses to follow uh, the king's order. In that, can, in that time, it was Nebuchadnezzar um, and received the ire of those in charge because of that. Do you see that connection there? Is that something that people might be uh, might be apt to make?
1: That, that is probably the more clear connection that most people will see, because we we understand that Daniel is happening a little bit before Esther, but, you know, so we have kind of the same things as the Babylonians, or uh, even, it's not even the Babylonians at that time, it's the Persians and Darius, uh, who are in charge at that time, where the Decree goes out that no one can pray to anyone except for the king for 30 days. So uh, we have even in the same empire this happening once again uh, kind of with Mordecai and his idea. And maybe he had heard the stories of Daniel uh, as he was growing up and knew kind of this thing happened before. But there was another thing as I was looking this up, another connection that I don't know if I would ever have made had I not seen it before. But as Haman is introduced, he's called Haman the Agagite. Uh, Several people want to link him back to King Agag of Amalek, that Saul was supposed to kill and destroy all, all the people and wipe out everything that they had back in 1 Samuel 15 and yet Saul decided no i don't i don't need to get rid of absolutely everything and so we have this kind of whether it's a play on words or it's an actual lineage relationship that we're talking about here we have we have Haman who could be uh one of the Amalekites that was not wiped out and then you have Mordecai, as we saw when he was introduced, being from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the same tribe that King Saul came from. So now we, that might be taking—well, just that going, might be stretching things a little much. Yeah, but there—you know—some there, you know, people have seen this and go, "No, wait, wait—I've seen this type of name before," and draw you know draw parallels that way.
0: Right, I mean, I think it's, I, I, it's it's interesting because it's, it sounds like you're saying that it could be that the whoever the author of Esther is is trying to connect Haman, um, in terms of like in the lineage of a gag, but it could be just as likely that it's just kind of a derogatory term, right? Because if you think about um the King Saul and and the lineage there, then it's like okay, Haman is basically an uh, agagite, you know, the same way you might call somebody a, a, a Cretan, you know, being someone from Crete. It doesn't mean they're literally from Crete, but right. it's been changed to use as, as a slur, essentially.
1: It, and that is very possible as well. So, there, and that's typically what other commentaries have said with that, is it's more of a slur, kind of a, a derogatoriness towards his people has have also been conquered by the persians so this is not this is not a persian person coming to power so kind kind of bringing out this idea that basically in this kingdom most everybody is a foreigner you've got you've got a as the king as basically the one persian and then everybody else in the story seems to be some defeated king from some defeated kingdom throughout the history of uh, the medes and the persians so So it may have no family basis at all but it was just an interesting comment that a few people made
0: yeah i think so too and and mordecai's refusal to bow down to pay homage I, there, there isn't really any Old Testament prohibition to doing that. I mean, it is not necessarily the same in terms of Daniel where it was explicitly you should worship. This paying homage seems to be a little bit more linked to, as you were talking about earlier, um, just paying respects. But clearly Mordecai doesn't want to do it. And this causes, regardless of his reasons, likely ones based on his faith and just the understanding of what's going on in the upper echelons of the uh, Persian government here. But it causes Haman just to be, just to be furious. You know, it says when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. But then it says he disdained um to lay hands on mordecai alone Uh, i guess his view was even greater he wanted to make sure many people many more were punished for this all the jews which leads in my mind to say the reason why he didn't bow down was as a result of his jewishness otherwise i don't think that haman would have connected that with all the other jews but here we have yet another example of the Jews and someone in power wanting to completely wipe them off the face of the earth. This happens time and again in the Old Testament and even into our own recent history. Uh, it just seems like a, a bad lot, you know? So, why do you think that his, his anger extended beyond just Mordecai and to, like, all the Jews? Uh, I guess, build on the argument that you've been making.
1: Well, I think... From Haman's perspective, we have somebody who is in a position of power that has been given this authority, second, basically second to the king, that has felt disrespected. And we find out as the rest of the servants talk to Mordecai that he tells them that he's a Jew. And so they relay that message to Haman. And uh, could be a moment where Haman goes back into the archives to check out this Jewish people. And we've seen uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the neighboring nations around as they seek to rebuild Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, right back to the king saying, wait, wait, uh, you should really go back and read the history book on these people. Because once they get this done, they're not going to be so nice to you anymore. You know, they're going to be a problem like they always have been. And I think that, conti- that continues to go on because we go, we go through history all the way up, you know, especially as recently as World War II, as this being repeated over and over again. And it could simply just be Haman taking the moment to say, you know, I want to make sure there's nobody else like him that may come back up later on. I'll just take care of the situation once and for all and be done with it.
0: In that way, it's and is a very loose connection. But I just think of the the fear that uh, Herod had to the threat of his power and how he slaughtered all the children of Bethlehem. You know, it's it's not quite the same, but it's coming from the same place. There's this individual who has a, a feels a threat to their authority or a slight against their authority, and instead of trying to find and eradicate the one who has uh, made that threat. They in desperation want to just wipe out a whole group of people. And that's what we see here. And it seems inconsistent, and we haven't gotten to the text yet, of whether or not the the king Xerxes, uh, Ahasuerus, whether he approves of this or not. Uh, uh, you know, spoiler alert, he's going to approve of it. But it doesn't make sense why he even would, or why Mordecai would think that this would go 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 well. Why? Why would anybody agree to wiping out an entire race of people, so
1: to speak? And again, I think that's simply a lust for power. We have the old adage, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, Linking to Herod a little bit later than the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, when he is on his deathbed, he orders uh, one of the hippodromes to be filled with people. And for when his his death is announced, that soldiers go in and slaughter everybody in the building because he wants people to mourn for his death. This is kind of that idea of you you let you let everything go to your head and then nothing that comes out of you seems logical anymore. Now, now granted in the at Herod's death, the soldiers decided, why am I going to do this? This is this is idiotic.
0: Yeah, he's after his death there's no uh there's no one there to sort of enforce the, the, the rule, the edict, uh, but I mean that, that right. shows the thinking, right? Like I want people to be crying on the day that I die, therefore I'm going to murder all these people. You know, and we see here in in the first part of chapter 3 a lot of gossip going on. You know, Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. We're told that as a fact. And then we see the king's servants, they're they're basically asking him, "Why are you doing this? Why are you disobeying the king's command?" And then day after day, they they tried to convince him. And eventually, you know, the, all the little rumors got up to Haman. And so, uh they, connect, they connected that to him being a Jew, right, because they said you know, it, that he was a Jew. But it says here in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, that is, once they told Haman, well, if Haman comes down, surely he'll obey then, right? It, it's one thing not to obey an edict from your ruler when it's passed down through several intermediaries, but when the man himself comes down, then I'm sure he'll change his tune. And so they said, for he told them that he was a Jew. It definitely seems connected to his Jewishness. So Haman comes down and he sees, he sees that the rumors are true. But not only that, they all see that, uh, that um, Mordecai is true to his word. So I'm certain, and, and I, I wonder if you'll agree, that there was also a little bit of aspect of if this one guy rebels then it's going to spread, right? If there's already the rumor mill going on that he's not listening, and if he gets away with it, well, gosh, then everybody could get away with not listening to the orders of the ruler. Uh, Do you think that's something that's going on too?
1: Exactly, because another parallel to Daniel is the uh, golden image that Nebuchadnezzar puts up in his honor and requires everybody in – in the kingdom to bow down and worship and then they look around and there's these three guys standing up while everybody else is is uh, worshiping and doing what they're supposed to be you know they want to make sure that you know these three don't because well Shadrach Meshach and Abednego were all also high-ranking authorities in the Babylonian Empire so if they rebel you know it can cause other people to wait if they can get away with it why can't i and then you have the entire the the fear of the entire overthrow of the king's power which nobody wants uh, whether you're the king or whether you're even just the prime minister like Haman you don't want that you don't want your position to be you know toppled over and done away with even if it looks like it's just starting out with one guy. But again, that's part of the fury there, is that he's so blinded by just people not doing what he says that you know he goes and makes rash actions, as we'll see in the rest of the text.
0: That reminds me a little bit in terms of uh, your one person standing up or two people or three people standing up against what is expected in terms of paying homage to the photo taken. Of a man named August Landmesser. Uh, You probably, you may not have heard of him, but you've probably seen the photo. And this is a photo taken in 1936 when they were launching a German army vessel. And there's this whole group of people. Some are soldiers, a lot of them are civilians, and they're all giving their best Sieg Heil to Adolf Hitler, who was in attendance. And they all had sort of that uh, Laramie salute with their their hands all outright, outstretched, their right hands. And then he, however, this man named August, he's standing there with his arms folded in sort of an individual uh, defiance. Uh, he was married to a Jewish woman. Uh, there was a lot of reasons for his objections, uh, but they... Um, that he would go on to uh, have some consequences for this but the point is here's this just striking picture of one person standing up uh, against the, the the demand that people pay homage to a ruler that isn't doing the right things and so we see here Mordecai too kind of in a way having his arms crossed while everybody else around him is saluting
1: right and we we can even move this into our context where it's not necessarily the ruler, or, you know, the president, or any of our elected officials, but now more than ever, people are required to pay homages to ideas, uh, and uh, activities that are strictly forbidden in the Bible, and we're supposed to, you know, bow down and say, you know, all of that's fine, We everybody needs to just do what they want, and everybody will get along. And, you know, we, we have to stand up as Christians to say, no, this is not right. You know, there, there is a line that I cannot and will not cross.
0: Well, and just, and again, to, just to make that explicit, you know, we're talking about things like the LGBTQ agenda and movement, which, uh, you know, began with this false idea that, well, what we do in our private lives shouldn't be of anyone's concern, which is fair enough in a pluralistic way free country but now it's become where people must pay homage to that must support it uh, must never speak against it and you can add to that things like uh, the crt movement you can add to that some extreme feminist movements you can add a lot of the cultural whims that are being uh, pushed down pushed down people's throats and yet, uh, you know, there are many reasons for us not to give in to those and to stand up against them regardless of the consequences that might come our way.
1: Right, and it, and as I said, you know, I tried to keep it, you know, you know, generic and out there just to try to cover a, a blanket statement because who knows, in a couple of months there may be something new that comes out, you know, that, you know, we have, that we'll have to then answer uh, and deal with as well. So it's,
0: Humans are very good at inventing new ways to be deviant and to resist God's will, for sure. Uh, I do have a feeling, though, in a exactly. few months, a few months, we're still going to be faced with some of the issues I mentioned, for sure. But yeah, we Oh, must, I, oh we,
1: absolutely. But
0: yeah, we must. We must uh, stand up against those things. But we stand up against it not to bring attention or to make a name for ourselves, but because a our consciences require that we obey God rather than man in these situations. But also. In um, sort of a defiant act of true love, standing up against that which is not good for people so that people can see and maybe encourage bravery in others that this is not something we should just be going along with. It's not not God-pleasing. But in many ways, it's not healthy for people, too. I think of, of kids who are being groomed to uh, think that they aren't part of the, the sex that they were born. I, I think of my own children in public school. You know, Are they being inculcated with these types of ideas? Uh, they probably were more so in Connecticut than they are now in Minnesota, but it's still here. You know, there's still two uh, kids at my local school who identify as a, a sex other than what they are born, and the, the school enforces kids to observe that and pay homage to that. So there are plenty of specifics it, it, that are worth mentioning for sure. Um, but anything well, else about sure. that or anything before we take our break?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, we we shouldn't solely go with the generic, but need need to point these things out, because yes, we have a great issue with our our youth uh, my, uh, my kids are a sophomore in college and a senior in high school, and they have seen this you know for the last few years uh, just played out even even in small town milford it's It's here because it has been so it's been so inundated in our society
0: agreed may god give us the courage of mordecai to stand up for what is right Uh, but when we return from our break folks we're gonna get maybe a little back away from the modern times and back into the time of esther as the results of Haman's plot uh, continue to unfold so we will look at that when we get back don't go anywhere folks We'll see you on the other side.
1: What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723.
0: Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Doug Menton, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Milford, Illinois. Folks, I love hearing from you. It's such an encouragement when you write in to share with me how Thy Strong Word is a part of your devotional life. Remember, if you have any questions or comments about today's show or you just want to say hello, you can email me at PastorBoo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and send me a message there. And thank you so much for listening and telling others about Thy Strong Word. Your friends and family can tune in on the air on demand at kfuo.org forward slash thy strong word or through your favorite podcasting app. Now, uh, Pastor, before the break, we were uh, starting to make just some connections about standing up for what's right, even in a world that demands that we pay homage to that which is not God pleasing. But it would probably behoove us to head back to the scriptures and uh, get some more of the account under our belt. Um, I'd like to do that beginning with seven. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur—that that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business." That they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. There we go. That's verse 11. We'll stop there. We're almost to the end. So now we have Haman trying and succeeding to talk the king into letting him destroy the Jews. Starting at the top, brother, take us through these events.
1: Okay, so we have beginning at the beginning of the year, Haman deciding when these these things should happen. Babylonian records show that they believe that the human fates for the year were set in the first month of the year. So, whatever was going to happen over the course of the next year was decided by the gods or by fate or whatever uh, during that first month. So, then they cast lots, basically throwing dice until whatever requirement was needed to show that this was the day that it needed to be done on. And then they did it again for the months. So they went through all 12 months, getting to the point where they decide that it's the 13th day of the 12th month. And again, all of this seems like, to, to our modern senses, a lot of superstition, which is really what it is. But to give a little bit of spoiler alert, for later on in our study of Esther, this is exactly where the Jewish Feast of Purim comes from, is the plural of the pur, the lot that was cast to decide these things. So, so we, we have, have that day –
0: go ahead. I was gonna say. So we have here, uh, just to kind of catch people up, we have uh, Haman who's casting lots to determine when – the destruction of the Jewish people will take place, and then the the casting of the lots kind of indicate what we would say is we're around February or March, uh, and so that's about eleven months from when they are talking about it in the narrative. So you you said you talked about the Akkadian term, which is you know per for casting lots in that Jewish level of perim, um, which. We'll reference again more in chapter nine. That's sort of the spoiler alert for sure. Uh, but um, in in this case, this casting of lots. I wonder why did they do that? Why did they? You talked about superstition, but was it so that you know they could feel like the gods were on their side because they had decided, or was it because they just didn't want any responsibility for it going wrong? So then they can say, "Well, you know, we didn't pick the date." I am sure there are a lot of reasons, but why do you think that they use this this sort of by chance operation to figure out when to do this?
1: I think part of it deals in both of those ideas that the every culture that has a panoply of gods always has a god of chance so you know it's all and it's kind of linked to just kind of the random things that happen during life and so I think that is a lot of it in the casting of the lots but then you also have that going away you no know, the you know the lot said this is this is what was supposed to this is when it was supposed to be. So that's I I have no control over them. You know it's you you go to the casino and you play craps. I'm not necessarily uh, condoning gambling, but you know you you throw the dice down the table. Yeah, you're wanting a seven or eleven, but you can't force the dice to be that way. You have to take whatever is there. And, you know, if you lose everything, well, you know, the dice just weren't with me. And you could have that same, that same lack of accountability for the item, for the actions, if something, if something bad were to happen or it were not to take place.
0: I I think there's an interesting quote from a Greek historian from the 4th century BC. So, I mean, that's pretty close to this time. And, you know, the Persian idea of casting lots would have, have been like a stone die. And, of course, there was chance involved. And he writes, So we see that mere human wisdom does not know how to choose what is best any more than if one were to cast lots and do as the lot fell. But the gods, my son, the eternal gods, know all things, both what has been and what is and what shall come to pass as a result of each present or past event. And if men consult them, they reveal to those to whom they are propitious what they ought to do and what they ought not to do. But if they are not willing to give counsel to everybody, that's not surprising, for they are under no compulsion to care for anyone unless they want to which the reason why i think this is kind of humorous is because he's talking out of both sides of his mouth this this greek historian he says well you know, of course, the right thing to do is to seek the God's will by casting lots because then they will tell you and they know all things. But if it doesn't go or they don't give you an answer, well, that's because they don't have to because they don't care for any of you. And I think that demonstrates the the futility in relying on lots. You know, on the one hand, if it comes to pass, then they say, yes, our God did it, and he, he gave us or they gave us the right information. And then if it doesn't come to pass, then they say, oh, well, we were too sinful or, or the gods didn't look upon us and they didn't give us the right information. So their gods always get off the hook and are literally described as being supernatural beings that have no compulsion to care for anyone. Um, it, it, it's so— it's so reflective of the humans who've created these gods in their own image, uh, and, and I just think it's in striking contrast to the god of, of course, Mordecai, the one true god who loves his people and who doesn't call on us to take chances but to trust in his revealed word.
1: That's right, and we have, we have this great contrast here, and uh, one of the things I thought of during the break was – the idea of this being a matter of chance and something that we can shove off to the side if it doesn't work out on Haman's side versus the integrity of Mordecai. Because Mordecai could have gone through and finally been worn down to, okay, fine, I'll, I'll at least kneel uh, to you know, make some sort of concession, but he, day after day, continues to not bow himself down, to not pay homage and, you know, it's that integrity that is really what we seek to uh, to have in our lives because it's not something that, by nature, we have. Because we look to, yes, all the rest of the religions of the world where it's like, well, God will answer you or the gods will answer you if they deem you worthy. And if they don't, well, that's your fault.
0: Right, right. Well, and and we see here, too, in verse 8, you know, Haman goes to King Ahasuerus. Um, I wish I could say Xerxes. I should, because it's easier to say than Ahasuerus. But uh, Haman goes to uh, Xerxes here, and he says, okay, listen, there's these people, and they're all over the place, and they're dispersed among all the other peoples, you know, the good peoples, our peoples, in the provinces of your kingdom. Now, it's not as though the Jews all decided to move into Persian territory, right? There's a reason why there are a bunch of Jews uh, interdispersed between the people.
1: Right? There is, but what's the one thing missing out of Haman's statement to the king? I don't know. What? He, he never mentions which group of people. He just says sure. there is a certain people. He never names them by name. And and is talking with a until the until the actual edict is sent out. But it's just like there is this certain people. You know, their laws are different. They don't they don't obey your laws if they confl- if your laws conflict with their laws. And not sure if what exactly the different laws he's thinking of are, or if it's just they act differently. So I'm just whether he knew about the kosher food laws and the other things that God had set aside to separate them from all the other nations. Or if it was just, I don't like them, they have to be different, so there's my reason.
0: Right. Well, and I think it's pretty much just an exaggeration or a lie, as you've kind of suggested. You know, when he says their laws are different – from every uh, from those of every other people well that's a truth right because they have different laws but then they say they do not keep the king's laws and that i guess as a blanket statement is not true for the very most part they do keep the king's laws he's just saying well i know this one guy and he didn't keep this one law and so therefore these worthless people they don't even they don't keep any of your laws And, and naturally he's Hyperbolic because he wants King Ahasuerus to sign off on this. Probably also the reason why he's intentionally vague when he references the Jews by saying there's a certain people. Interestingly enough, though, the king, what is also absent, is the king does not say which group of people. So either he's vague because he doesn't have to be specific, they know who he's talking about, or the king just doesn't really matter. He's like, hey man, I put you in charge. This is the kind of stuff that you just need to take care of and not bother me. I don't know.
1: Well, and I I also think verse 9 helps us out with a little bit of the king's not worrying about it. Is Haman is offering to put up 10,000 talents of silver himself to have this done. And I was running through that, because we we get these measurements sometimes, especially like talents in the Bible, and what exactly does that mean? Well, talent is about 75 pounds. So we're talking 10,000 talents, which is 750,000 pounds of silver, and today silver is worth about $26 an ounce, which puts us almost to $300 million dollars in today's money that he's willing to put up himself to have this done.
0: That's some that's some deep rooted anger this guy has if he's willing to put up a ton of cash just to make this happen.
1: I mean I I don't know about you, but you know, I'm I am probably never going to see three hundred million dollars. Although, you know, if I if I would ever go out and actually play the Powerball sometime, possibly. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, not three hundred million, may, maybe two hundred and fifty million. Three hundred million is pretty high. I don't have that much.
1: <laughs> but you, you have, you have this, you know, definitely showing the deep hatred that he has, and it's over a what many people would consider a small slight. But how many times have we been slighted in a very? seemingly minuscule way, but then we lash out at the people who have done that to us. And our wrong to them ends up being much worse than their wrong to us.
0: Now, the Persians, for what it's worth, aren't also exactly um, a a kind and gentle people either. So you add, as you're saying right now, our natural desire to kind of get really angry and even kind of get revenge for people who even at the slightest insult might 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 cause us to feel bad you you add that as you said earlier this uh, absolutely corrupting power to this guy and the fact that he has the cash and the ability to make it take place yeah you, know, you have a recipe for disaster exactly it wouldn't be too much earlier that they also the uh, persian cla- persian folks rather uh, would have already slaughtered another class of people called the magian people uh, the greek historian herodias talks about this when two brothers uh, usurped the throne and so then uh, the persians by, by led by darius the first basically said anybody who is in the street who belongs to these type of people are to be killed. And so the Persians went through the streets of the capital, killing every Magian they encountered. And then afterwards, they celebrated this, the Persians did, with a holy day called the Massacre of the Magians, we see in the the histories. So, you know, this is also something that they kind of have done before at least once, and I would say... Probably several times they've, they've shown their power by even killing, let's say, the foreigners or the people who are different among them. Uh, that's, uh, it's happening or it's being threatened to happen to the Jews here, but it's actually happened in the past to others. So we also know, if you know history, that, the, that, that he's serious. This isn't just him venting his anger. He's going to try to make this take place. And Esther meanwhile, we know the, sort of the story, the point of the book of Esther is that she saves the people. But right now she's a, a, you know, a teenager. She's been married off. She doesn't have any power as queen. She's still pretty a weak position, isn't that right?
1: Exactly, cuz she is very young and in the uh, in the ancient world unless you were the uh single monarch as queen you really had no power uh, if, there, if there was a king the queen was kind of off in the background in the shadows uh, mainly to be presented out as a trophy wife as Ahasuerus had tried to do beforehand with, with Queen Vashti so yeah she she grew up in an environment where yes yeah, she has no power And even being elevated to queen, uh, she had the title but really no power.
0: Right. All she has to do is ask her predecessor about having any power to defy the king or to do anything. I tell you what, why don't we continue our conversation as I now read the rest of the chapter, which is verses 12 through 15. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. In one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So here we go. He, it's, it's taking place. The, the information has res, has been uh, written down. The decree has been sent to all the officials all over the kingdom. They've got the word. And even the citadel is just, I mean, they're just bustling with the, with gossip and confusion. What in the world is going on is what they're thinking. Um, how do we make sense of this?
1: Well, it is what happens when there is any major edict of this type throughout history is that you want to, people want to know, okay, okay, who are these people? Maybe I know some of them, maybe I don't. And so you get that confusion in as to okay who are these who are these people that are going to be annihilated? And if I'm a close friend of one, am I going to be caught in the crossfire as well? And I also wonder if it's some of the other servants in In the king's court that have talked to Mordecai before and maybe have had you know, admiration for his integrity, for his stand, for maybe his wisdom in things, but now are like, wait, okay, he, he started this whole ball rolling, and now um, you know, we go back to the history of this has been done before, could we be next you know where, where exactly does the anger and the fury of the king you know, through Haman uh, where, where does that end and is there going to be another one coming out for somebody else the next day so you you have you have all these questions that come up in people's minds because they are worried about self-preservation.
0: What I also think is then, very, what I think is very striking is that this um, <laughs> this decree is in contrast to the decree that we began with just a couple of chapters and a couple episodes ago. In chapter one, verse nineteen, it says, "If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it may not be repealed; that Vashti is to never come again before King Ahasuerus." And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So the decree went out, yada, yada, yada. It goes in the same method. So we have just, I think if you, and we know years have passed since these, but still it's it's a, it's a parallel I think we're being given here in the text just to show how ridiculous the king is. Um, and, and so undoubtedly it, it goes into what you were saying about the, the king's reign is so beset by these ridiculous and over over zealous decrees that and now he's drinking while the people of the capital are thrown into confusion over genocide uh, it's just it's absolutely a madhouse it's like a like a circus going on and it really demonstrates um, how out of control he really is
1: exactly and uh, this this chapter is actually one of those chapters where I, when first when first studying things, uh, even as a teenager, getting into Esther, if you go into the Apocrypha, in verse 13, it has the entire decree, and I don't believe we have enough time for it to be read. But when uh, the uh, scribes in Alexandria were translating the Hebrew of Esther into the Greek, they must have had in the library some copies of some of these decrees, so we have extra portions in there, and it's, it's interesting just the way it is all put out there, and really it goes down to the, you know, the extermination, but the method in the growth of the verbs in verse 13 you know they're, you know the instruction to destroy okay that seems bad enough right and then to kill and then to annihilate and it's like you know it almost seems like uh, in amos where you have the locust invasion where where one set what one set leaves behind the next set eats up it's like you know whatever does not fall under destruction, then kill, and then, you know, if there's anybody left, then, well, annihilate. And it's just the ramping up of the verbiage there, really showing the hatred and animosity. And I also wonder, with some people in the confusion and all of that, if some of them who were privy to the actual beginnings of this whole thing really realize that all of this comes out from one guy you know being seen as being disrespected by another guy
0: well and this is the definition of overkill too right to destroy to kill to annihilate Uh, it's it's like i want you to stab him and then shoot him and then burn him it's it's i think it also is reflective of the anger. I mean, King Ahesuerus has signed off on it, but these are really, the, the. I would say that the words of the actual edict were penned by Haman. He's the one whose anger is reflected in the edict.
1: Yes, yeah, and it, it is simply the king, basically in verse 10 and 11, just handing over the signet ring, saying, Do whatever you want. Right. Here's, here's me signing off on it so it's legal. Blank check. And it's like you know, do do whatever seems good to you. And well, this is what seems good to Haman
0: ooh something else and then they and they and he does it and he puts it into practice and you know next time we get together we're going to be moving into chapter four where esther even from her position of weakness as a young queen she well she uses what influence she does have to help intercede on behalf of her people but that we'll have to get to next time uh we are at the end of our show just a couple of minutes anything else you want to leave the people with brother
1: simply that you and I understand in our time what Mordecai was going through in his time. We have these things like CRT and the LGBT and all of these other influences in our lives screaming in our faces to bow down and worship them and to pay homage to them that are completely against what we believe, and it is very good and right to call upon God to give us the strength and the integrity of Mordecai, or even further back in the Bible to Elijah, who thought at one point that he was the only one left who followed Yahweh, to have that strength. Not necessarily that we need to do an entire revolution of things by ourselves. But simply for us to be able to live our lives, being able to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I did what was right. I did not just go off with what was popular and what was expedient to get along, but that I truly did my best to follow after and follow in the footsteps of my Savior.
0: Sounds good. Good way to end. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Doug Minton, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Milford, Illinois. Thank you, pastor, for being on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: And dear saints, be sure to tune in tomorrow as we indeed turn the page in Ruth to chapter four and we see, well, the titular Queen Esther come back on the scene and she's going to um, help Mordecai and help the jews be sure to tune in for that tomorrow so until then may god's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray father keep us in thy strong word